and Mark, uh, Carl Martin, friend of mine, shared last week uh, from verses 30 through 37 in Mark chapter 9. And he talked about humility and following Jesus. And this week, we're going to look at uh, the last part of chapter 9, verses 38 through 50. Now, in last week's uh, message, Carl talked about um, the disciples discussing and asking questions questions among themselves as they're walking from Galilee to Capernaum. And the question that came up among the disciples was, who is the greatest? And Jesus, throughout his entire time with his disciples, was encouraging them with two basic things, and the same things with us, that Jesus wants us to know who he is and trust what he says he can do. Now, Jesus had a purpose And keeping that purpose was his highest priority. Jesus was telling his disciples for the second time that he's going down to Jerusalem. He's going to be handed over to the high priest, and he's going to be killed. And there again, he would rise again on the third day. Now, after arriving at Capernaum, Jesus, with his disciples, they get together. And Jesus says, hey, guys, what were y'all talking about? What were you discussing among yourselves along the way? And it was one of those points where you could almost feel the tension between Jesus and his disciples because they said, well, uh, we were talking about who's the greatest. Now, most likely, the disciples thought that Jesus was probably a safe distance, that they they wasn't an earshot of what they were talking about. So, So they thought, When Jesus is away, they can talk about these things. So Jesus' question was designed to make them think about their conversation, their priorities, and their purpose. And it is strangely wonderful how someone or something takes its proper place and acquires its true character when it is set in front of Jesus. So long as they thought that Jesus was not hearing them or listening to them, they thought that maybe this question was a safe one. But then when they brought it in front of Jesus, proper place and true character was revealed. And so it is with us. If we would take time in our lives, our relationships, our conversations, our motives, and place them before in front of Jesus... It would be strangely wonderful how they would take their proper place and its true character revealed. Now, Jesus graciously answers this question of who is the greatest by setting in front of them a wonderful example. In verse 36, he says, Taking a child, he set him before them. He reminded the disciples that the greatest among them was the servant among them that we're to serve the least of these. So being greatest in the kingdom of God has nothing to do with accomplishments, with achievements, awards, accolades, or even accumulation. Being the greatest in the kingdom is not about prestige or status or possessions. Being great in the kingdom is all about how you love God and love others. So with that in mind, let me ask you this. How great were you this past week? 
The overall point from last week was this. If anyone wants to be first, they shall be last of all and the servant of all. And now we transition this week. We're going to look at how Jesus, being with his disciples, discusses some strong warnings and righteous living. So before we go to the passage this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the time that we've had already to experience the gifts and talents that you've given our praise team to lead us in worship and song. And not only with their voices and with the instruments, but the lyrics that warm and soften and encourage our hearts of your truth. So God, now we come to your word as we open it. We pray that you would teach us by your spirit in all wisdom in all truth, not just informations for our minds or our thoughts, but transformation in our hearts, through our hands, and through our feet. God, would you by your spirit convince us, convict us of your truth? And would you also remind us that you empower us by that same spirit to live as you have called us to live? Would you take a minute to pray for the person in front of you or behind you, maybe that person that you just learned their name, that they would hear from the Lord this morning and respond to him. In Jesus' name, amen. It doesn't take very long for us to look around in our society, in our world, in our culture, and see that there are warning signs everywhere. Uh, there's warning signs for toxic, for poison. Uh, there's warning signs for a road that ends. And then there's warning signs. <laughs> Just going to leave this up here for a second. That's a traffic circle warning sign, by the way, if anybody doesn't know. There's also this warning sign, and, and some of you are one of two people. You fall in one of two categories. You either hit the gas or you slam on brakes. There's a warning sign. Don't, don't you wish that uh, people came with warning labels? Like, like one like this, highly opinionated, proceed with caution. Have you ever thought, why, why, do we have, why do we have warning signs? Warning signs are designed to prevent an action that can harm you or someone else and to ensure life is being lived to its fulfillment. Now, have you ever thought about, just as a side, how thankful we should be for people who give us warning signs. Can you imagine life without warning signs? Now, people, for the most part, who put up warning signs, they know why they're putting up the warning sign. They know the dangers and the results of what happens in the absence of those warnings. And it's a general rule that warning signs are more closely followed when the potential outcome for harm is greater. And I'll give you an example. 
Children, parents, and discipline. If you say to a kid, if you do that again, you're not getting a piece of candy. In their mind, they're going, I can probably live without the candy. But if you say to the kid, if you do that again, you're not going to see the light of day until you're 18. I probably won't do that. The warning sign is adhered to when we realize the danger and the severity of it. Now this morning, we're going to look at warning signs from Jesus, and I'm convinced, and I hope you are, that Jesus knows why he puts the warning signs out there for us. The warning that he gives are intended to keep us from harm and others, and to give us life to the fullest. So the main point I want to leave with us this morning is this. Righteous living requires heeding godly warnings and our courageous response to the warning. So the title of the message is Dire Warnings and Righteous Living. And there's three areas I want to look at. And the first one is this, serving from the same source. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 9. We're going to look at verse 38 through 41. Mark 9, 38 through 41. John said to him, Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. These first three or four verses of, uh, that we're looking at, there are some ideas that Jesus is bringing about. And the first one is this, is that there's no room for superiority. John says, because he was not following us. Now, if you look through the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, you'll see that Peter, James, and John are always uh, needing a little more help, a little more encouragement. And, and Peter is usually the one who needs the most encouragement. He's usually the one that puts his foot in his mouth the most. He's the one that actually rebuked Jesus, if you remember. But this time, it's John. John is the one who comes to Jesus. And you can tell from this passage that John and the other disciples spot someone as they're walking, casting out a demon of someone in Jesus' name. And one thing you'll find in the New Testament is that this period in Scripture with Jesus, that people believed in demons. They believed not only in people having demons, but belief in casting them out. And they would cast them out through word, by exercising them out. Now, John had noticed this man casting out a demon of a man, but he didn't know if he liked it or not. He was kind of in this internal turmoil because this man wasn't in the in crowd with us and Jesus. And so the disciples tried to prevent this man from casting out a demon of another man. Now, now think about what they were trying to prevent. They were trying to prevent a man casting out a demon of another man in Jesus' name. 
would they really rather this man suffer with a demon than have somebody cast him out in Jesus' name? One commentator noted, and you may remember this from a few weeks ago, that they wanted to stop this man casting out this demon because of their own recent failure to cast out a demon themselves. Maybe they were either jealous, or maybe they were just not sure because this man wasn't in the in crowd with them. Now this man, we don't know much about, but in all probability he was a believer in Jesus. We don't know about his conversion. But maybe he had heard Jesus' message, and maybe he trusted in Jesus and began following him and was just putting into practice what Jesus said he could do. So instead of applauding this man, they were trying to hinder this man because he was not following us. He wasn't doing it like we would have done it. Now this incident is not about casting out demons. It's not about even um, who's inside or outside Jesus' ministry. This incident is about attitudes. And it appears that John and the rest of the disciples are still kind of focused on themselves as the greatest. Jesus, this man's casting out a demon, but he's not with us. And we've all fallen for this sort of subtle trap. Sometimes it is hard for us to see, accept, and encourage success and growth in other people. And it's true in the church, and it's true out of the church. And Jesus says there's no superiority at the foot of the cross. How does Jesus respond to this? He says, for he who is not against us is for us. In other words, there's no middle ground. Jesus laid down this great principle again in Matthew 12, 30, when he says, he who is not with me is against me. So if he's not against us, he's for us. And if he's not with me, he's against us. Which the principle is this. There is no neutral ground regarding one's relationship to Jesus. Either you are for him or you are against him. And it begs the question this morning, where are you? For those of you here this morning, would you say that you are in a relationship with Jesus living with him as your Lord and Savior. How do we know? How do we know if we are for him or against him? We have to ask ourselves before God if there's ever been a time that you have surrendered yourself to Jesus and his work on the cross, accepted his work of salvation and forgiveness and redemption, and said yes to his grace. Some of you may say, well, Matthew, I've been to church my whole life. I've heard the stories. I can quote the stories. I can sing the songs. But that's not the question. The question is, has there ever been a time where you have fully surrendered your life to Jesus and his work on the cross for you? Joshua says... Joshua 24, 15, choose today whom you will serve. Are you for him 
or against him. And here's a hard fact. Once a person has been confronted with the truth of Christ, neutrality is forever impossible. Jesus says there's no neutral ground in your relationship with him. The last lesson we learn from these first four verses is this. There's an attitude of service. Jesus says, For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you're, you're of your name as followers of Christ, truly I say to you, he will not lose his reward. Now the teaching here is simple and unmistakable. It simply states that kindness shown, any help given to people because of Christ, will not go unnoticed by Jesus. It's a gracious, wonderful promise of the Lord. It's also worth noting that the help doesn't have to be huge. It's a cup of water. But if it's done in the name of Jesus, it's like fishes and loaves in the king's hand. But what makes this cup of water so precious is what Jesus says, because your name as followers of Christ. Remember Jesus says in Matthew 25, 40, the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to the least of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it unto me. One author commented this way, Where else but in God's family should someone find a people that love and accept one another, encourage one another, submit to one another, and do not slander one another, and so much more than in the church? And what's the effect? John 13, 35, by this, by this, how we treat and love one another, how we offer a cup of water in the name of Jesus, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And this type of love is attractive to the world. They will want what we have, and we will not lose our reward, says Jesus. The next area Jesus gets to is in verses 42 through 48. We're going to look at verse 42, and it's the seriousness of sin. Verse 42 says this, Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if they, with a heavy millstone hung around his neck, he had been cast into the sea. Now this passage is intentionally strong, and the warning is intentionally great. So you may be asking, well, what is a millstone? Well, there's two types of millstone that are around in Palestine. And the first millstone was a, kind of a hand millstone that women used in the kitchen or right outside the kitchen. It was, it was used to grind flour, uh, uh, wheat and grain and barley into flour, and that was in the, uh, in the kitchen and outside the home. But there's another millstone that is also used in Palestine, and it's a large millstone, and it's used for olives and grapes and other things. And in fact, this thing is so heavy that it takes two or three men or a donkey to wheel the millstone around. Now, Jesus says, he didn't say a small one. He says it would be better for a person to have a large millstone. This is the millstone he's referring to. That this millstone be cast around the person's neck, and cast, and they will be cast into the sea. Is that a strong warning? In fact, this verb cast is perfect tense, meaning once they're cast, they're going to stay down there. 
Now, interestingly, Jesus just doesn't pull this out of the sky. It was actually a form of punishment or even uh, used in war. Josephus, the historian, tells us that when certain Galileans made a successful revolt, they took those of Herod's party and drowned them in the lake. That some had been thrown into a river with heavy weights around their necks. So it's obvious that the warning from Jesus is relative to the culture, and even more importantly, a warning that they need to take as severe. It's obvious that to sin is terrible, but to teach or lead another to sin is even more severe. Now, why is Jesus so severe in in his warning in this verse? Because it is counter to everything he wants for his children. And he wants no one or anything or, or nothing to inhibit or stop what he has planned for his people. So it will be hard on the person who makes it easier for another to sin, whose conduct, either thoughtless or deliberate, puts a stumbling block in the path of a brother or sister. So this begs the question, are you and I, by our words, by our conduct, causing anyone to stumble? Let me ask it another way. Are we making it easier for someone to follow Christ, or are we making it more confusing? It is at this point in the passage and in the warnings that we go back to putting everything at the foot of Jesus. To ask ourselves, are we even aware or conscious? Even deeper, do we care if we're causing someone else to stumble? In verses 43 through 48, Jesus furthers his teaching in the seriousness of sin. If it wasn't serious enough, he says, If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into the unquenchable fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. If your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Dire warnings. Jesus just warns about leading others astray and now he warns the the disciples against themselves. Jesus calls out three very valuable body parts. Have you ever thought, why didn't he say like eyelashes, fingernails, gallbladder? Because I think all of us would kind of go, ah, I can live without them. Jesus uses these body parts because of the seriousness of sin. How valuable to you is your hand? your foot, your eye. And yet Jesus says, get rid of them if they're going to cause you to sin. Now, in this passage, you have to understand that that Jesus is using a, a language or even a speech known as hyperbole. Hyperbole is an obvious exaggeration or an intentional overstatement. And here's some examples. 
When you go to the grocery store, and those of you who are really efficient, and you put like eight bags on each arm, try to get to the, the, the house without, without having making more trips, you'll say things like this. This bag, these bags of groceries weigh a ton. Or you'll say things like, I've been waiting forever. Or everyone knows that. Or driving on Hilton Head in the summer is the best thing ever. <laughs> it is an exaggeration. It is an overstatement. Not meant to be taken literally. The lesson is this. Sin cannot, must not be toyed with, flirted with, or even smiled at. Sin and temptations must be put to death. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22. Examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good, Abstain from every form of evil. Every form of evil. Flee. Abstain. Indecision is costly and can prove deadly. Hesitation or consideration about a sin can prove to be destructive. And Jesus is saying that surgery must be radical and immediate. Jesus did not want his disciples to perform physical surgery, but spiritual surgery to eliminate sin from their lives. And these graphic words, these, these, this hyperbole speech is, is there to grab our attention, to remind us the seriousness of sin. Jesus wants us to be prepared to make exceptional and at times costly, radical sacrifices if we want to follow Jesus. And as a reminder, if you're thinking, oh, well, what is sin? Well, let me just remind us all that sin is any action or thought that is contrary to the character of God. And the result of sin is death from which Jesus wants to preserve us. That's why it's important. That's why it's serious. God takes sin seriously. Why? Because it was enough of a serious thing that he would send his son to the cross to die. And so ours is to take it seriously too. And for some particularly non-Christians, holding on to sin rather than holding on to Jesus, as Jesus talks about, will lead us, lead people to hell. That's why it's serious. Remember the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 30, 19? I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse, so choose life. Jesus came to give us life. So it is worth any sacrifice and any discipline and any self-denial to do the will of God. And only in doing that will is there real life and ultimate, completely satisfying peace. Verses 43 through 48 
are not meant to be taken as a good theory, a, a good practice for those people. Verses 48, 43 through 48 are meant to be taken personally in here before Jesus. It means that it may be necessary for you and me to eliminate some habits, to abandon some pleasures, to give up some friendships, to cut out something that has been become very dear to us in order to be fully obedient to the will of God. And this isn't somebody, something somebody else can deal with. It's what you and the Lord have to deal with. One author said this, the cutting off or plucking out may be as painful as a surgical operation. It may seem like cutting out part of our own body, but if we are to know real life, real happiness, and real peace, it's got to go. There's a phrase I've used for myself since high school and with kids, and even now, it comes back to mind. When in doubt, run towards holiness. If there's a doubt, if there's a question, run towards Jesus. Run towards holiness. Don't flirt with sin. Jesus warns us it is serious. And the last thing we need to look at is verses 49 through 50. Verse 49 says this, For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with, that, what, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at, pre- at peace with one another. This passage from uh, verses 38 through 50 has three different areas where commentators and scholars have said these are some of the most difficult in the New Testament. In fact, probably the most difficult in Mark. And we're looking at all three this morning, so there's obviously things that I can't unpack all the way. But this passage here, I want to look at the principles of what Jesus is talking about with salt. He uses three different references for salt. And the first one, he says, everyone will be salted with fire. Now, at first glance, you think, salted with fire? What is that all about? Well, Jesus is talking about a Jewish practice that was given in Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13, where it says, Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt, so that the salt of your covenant with your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offering, you shall offer salt. So in this statement, Jesus is not just saying, Uh, pulling out something salt and fire. He's bringing it back to his audience. And he says to him, fire and trials and sacrifices are part of what all this is about. In the New Testament, fire has two purposes, purification and persecution. And in purification, you get this picture of a silversmith standing over his uh, uh, bowl of silver. And underneath the bowl is fire, and the fire burns out the impurities, and the impurities in the metal come to the top. It's called the dross. And the silversmith will then scrape off all the impurities, the dross, and throw it aside. And it's been said that the silversmith knows the the silver is pure when he can see his own reflection in the silver. It's a great picture of us in Jesus. That fire purifies us, that the Spirit of God 
burns out those impurities. And then the Savior graciously takes those things away until he sees his own reflection. There's also persecution. Fire purifies life. It is the discipline by which sin is exposed and conquered by Christ. And then there's persecution. All of us have obstacles. All of us have opposition. We all have had and will have fire in our lives, persecutions and trials to purify us. That's what Jesus is talking about by salted by fire. But then he says this, salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Now we have many uses for salt. Salt is good. Now if you don't believe me, just try to go a few days without having any salt in your life. On your food. In this passage, we focus on two practical purposes. Salt is good for two reasons, primarily. The first is that salt is a preservative. If you put it on meat, if you put it on, on different products, it will, it will preserve it. Well, preserving it means that it will keep away decay and it will keep out corruption. But there's also a second thing. Salt enhances flavor. So there's two things. Salt will preserve, keep away decay and, cor and corruption, but it also enhances flavor. Now, Jesus is not talking about food in this passage. He's talking about himself. Salt is good. Remember when Mark chapter 10, 18, and Jesus said to them, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So he's talking about himself. In paraphrase, Jesus is saying this. When you forget Jesus... When you lift yourself higher than him, when you think and live like you don't need Jesus, the only one that is good, then decay and corruption will be invited into your life. And your life will become flavorless and unattractive. And so we ask the question, how are you to be made salty again? We surrender our lives to Jesus. Which brings us to the last phrase Jesus references about salt. Have salt in yourselves, end of verse 50. Have Jesus in your lives to preserve us, to keep corruption away, and to give our lives flavor. Matthew 5, 13 says, Be salt of the world, meaning be Jesus in the world. How many of you have ever eaten bland food? And don't be pointing to the person who cooks in your house right now. How many of you have eaten bland food? No one ever talks about really enjoying bland food. Like, man, that restaurant was so great. They have the most bland food. You got to try it. People all around us seeking more out of the mundane, boring, and corrupted tastes of life. Solomon said it best. Meaningless, meaningless, meaningless. Bland, bland, bland. Everything is bland without God. We are the salt. 
If Christians themselves have lost the thrill, the purity, and the flavor of the Christian life, where will the world ever get these things? That's the final warning Jesus gives to his disciples in this passage. And I'm going to close with a couple of questions for us to consider this week. The first one is the most important one. Are you for Christ or against him? Has there been a time in your life where you have surrendered everything you know about yourself to everything you know about Jesus? That you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior? That you believe through faith that he died for your sins? That he's reconciled you through himself? That he's given you the Holy Spirit to indwell in you and promised you an eternal place in heaven? If there's never been a time, this is the morning to answer the question, are you for me or against me? Because there's no neutral ground. The second question is this, what areas of your life, people, temptations, or places that need to be amputated, removed, or plucked out to experience life in the kingdom of God? What are your eyes watching? What are your hands doing? Where are your feet taking you? Lay it all before Jesus so it'll have its proper place and its real character will be revealed. How aware are we of our influence on others? Do we care? Are we paying attention? Are we causing anyone to stumble as parents? Business people. And the last one is this. How are you and I treating the privilege of being salt and light? To bring Jesus' message of hope and life to a thirsty and corrupt world. Is there anything holding you back from loving God and loving people well? Final point that we started with was this. Righteous living requires heeding godly warnings and our courageous response. Warning labels are not just suggestions. A response is required. I'm going to ask Seth and his praise team to come up. And he's going to play for a minute. And I want you to spend time with the Lord. Maybe during this time that God has burned up some impurities that you need to take away with him. And let me just remind you, God is a gracious God. He's an invitation God. He he wants us to come. What needs to change in your life? Place those things before Jesus. God, thank you for this morning and thank you for this passage, even the difficulties of it. And God, I pray this morning, in this moment, that you would do a work that only you can do in the hearts and minds of your people. God, I pray that there would be restoration and confession and forgiveness. God, help us to heed the warnings and have a courageous response. We trust you with the results of that in Jesus' name.